Chapter 5 Financialization, Globalization and Industrialization Quote A banker is a fellow who lends you his umbrella when the sun is shining but wants it back the minute it begins to rain. Close quotes. Mark Twain. The global financial market is huge. It's also based on a Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme held together by government force. In much of the West, GDP growth over the past 30 years has to a fairly significant extent been driven by the manufacturing growth of Asia, as billions across the continent industrialised and urbanised. Growth levels in the West have been based on much smaller margins of growth than in the East, and most of this growth has come from financial systems. As industry, manufacturing and resource extraction has mostly moved out of the West and towards the developing world. Anglo-Saxon capitalism, the most successful form of capitalism, is one based on debt. If I borrow £10,000 over five years and need to pay back £12,000, my investment has got to be able to match the higher interest rates and it gives me an incentive to produce more efficiently than others in order to pay back this debt. Assuming I succeed, and if you expand this across the entire economy, you see there is a need for constant technological progress to meet these debt obligations. Furthermore, any slowdown of technological progress can have huge implications for the entire economy if it's based on these types of debts. Well, this is exactly what we're seeing in Britain and America. The economic Anglo-Saxon capitalist model is breaking down. The last 12 years has, in fact, seen very few technological developments with perhaps the only new invention worth talking about, the smartphone, making only a small dent in the rapid technological developments needed to sustain this debt-based model. This, of course, causes a problem. If debt can't be repaid, as you're not making enough money to pay it back, the whole economy starts to slow down. The financial system, therefore, does not have enough money to continue growing and to continue investing. Banks can of course create artificial money, but this also creates long-term problems. Therefore, new inventions and new technological progress are the only things that allow for an ever-growing economy. But this is all slowed down. The move of manufacturing to Asia has seen the West rely on the financialization of their economies, where Western corporations invest in Asia and Asian manufacturing, and are just content to reap the profits of this, hoping these profits will trickle down into the economy to pacify the citizens of the Western countries. These profits made in Asia have, to a large extent, been brought back to the West, but they have not gone to ordinary people, but to the people who were investing in Asia, those who were already wealthy. The financialization of much of the Western economy, which in turn is based on Asian tech manufacturing and third world resource extraction and farming, is called globalization. Yet the massive economic growth resulting from the industrialization of Asia since the 1990s and 2000s is starting to flatten out. Other growth areas like Africa and South America 
of politics far too corrupt and it is far too mismanaged to be a reliable source of future growth. In short, growth across the world is slowing down and not quick enough to prop up growth in the West. This isn't to say some places in the West haven't boomed. Consumer and internet technology has driven the American economy. Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Microsoft have grown huge, while financial services in Britain has propped up our economy since Margaret Thatcher's reforms. You only need to walk around London to see the huge investments resulting from the financialization of the city. Britain is pretty much propped up by London, which in turn is pretty much propped up by its financial services. This is something of a legacy of traditional confidence in Britain's currency and its government, and also a legacy of its empire. But financial services shouldn't really be able to prop up most of an economy. The richest countries should be investing to support new and emerging technologies to compete with the East as a manufacturing base, as technological diffusion makes it easier for other places to catch up and undercut you. A decline of old industries is natural, but it started in the north of England about 100 years ago, perhaps more, and 50 years ago in the Rust Belt of the United States as its industries declined and became cheaper to build elsewhere. Today, we're seeing something similar happen in a silicon rust belt developing in California, as huge profits from a third industrial revolution begin to slow down. California and the west coast of America are starting to have problems of de-industrialization. The first industrial revolution was largely in England. The second was largely in the Midwest of the United States and Germany. The third industrial revolution, sometimes called the Digital Revolution, was located largely in California and the West Coast. All of these caused huge capital accumulation. But to a large extent, This capital was not reinvested back into local areas, but used to largely reinforce centralised financial systems. There are large quantities of excess capital that typically come from having a strong manufacturing and industrial base. It means that excess capital needs to be managed efficiently and results in a naturally strong financial industry. In Britain and the United States, this excess capital became more and more centralised over time in London and New York respectively. Germany, however, has quite a decentralised financial system and it is largely managed to reinvest these profits to keep its manufacturing base. Even the First World War and then the Second World War couldn't quite kill off Germany's decentralised finance. While the financial system should work in a continuous motion, with banks reinvesting profits from manufacturing back into new manufacturing techniques, infrastructure and new investments, this never actually seems to happen. In effect, trickle-down economics is a con. Or at least it is when the financial system is over-centralised. This has been noted especially in recent years, with neither private industry nor governments even attempting the required long-term investments to get manufacturing back. Political capital that rich democracies allow its governments have been misspent. Rather than political capital being used by politicians to start rebuilding manufacturing economies, Political capital has been used to start wars or to prop up military spending, while large welfare states have quelled the unease many have about their own situations simply by bribing them. Meanwhile, 
there is always political capital to bail out the banks. Political capital by politicians could have been used to restart deep scientific research, large-scale space sector spending, which could have produced who knows what type of technologies, or even large-scale infrastructure projects like high-speed rail. But, as we've seen time and time again, governments are bad at allocating resources. Sometimes sheer willpower and need can result in government innovation, but it is rare. The existential challenge of the Second World War proved so huge that largely apolitical and often Jewish American scientists were moved into action when the US poured huge resources into the Manhattan Project to develop the atom bomb, showing that somewhat long-term government investment in science could lead to great results. Following the Manhattan Project, America looked to have solved the problems of government-led innovation by developing a huge space sector following the Sputnik moment, when the Soviets flew a satellite right over US territory. Furthermore, American government money was used to kickstart the digital revolution through the building and funding of computing networks and the ARPANET, the precursor to the internet. Yet, by the late 1960s, and the US sent a man to the moon and beat the Soviets, yet the result of this new technology didn't prove to be a new revolution. Any kind of private investment and private profits from a space sector which would be needed to carry on the industry were nowhere to be found, and space remained a government flight of fancy. Any continuing developments were curtailed by the disastrous Vietnam War, which ate up political and financial capital and caused huge mistrust in the government by the people. The 2000s in America were much the same. The victory of the United States over the Soviets in the 1990s meant that the United States did truly lead the world. By the 1990s, the US economy was approaching 1950s level of prosperity. Yet the 9-11 attacks gave George Bush and his neoconservatives huge political capital, which was entirely spent on fighting a war on terror. Long-term investments in the future of the country itself were just ignored as the American government wasted the potential of the 1990s. To some extent, the private market in America did continue the growth. American private companies' long-term focus was on the new technology of the internet. The dot-com bubble of the early 2000s, however, showed what perhaps we still haven't learned. The internet isn't the profit magnet many think it to be. The spread of a technology that makes communication and information so cheap and easy to spread around did enact a huge deflationary pressure on Western economies as suddenly, so much, so quickly, became cheap and indeed free. I perhaps spent the first 15 years of my life on the internet almost never paying for anything at all. The vast majority of internet-based firms are still not really profitable. Many have never been profitable at all. The dot-com bubble was the first sign of that. But even today, only a small amount of tech firms make profits considering the size and the impact of the internet on our daily lives. Many an old company has been burned by buying internet firms they thought would be profitable because they thought they understood the internet, rather than simply acknowledging the trend that the internet has always been, and will probably always be, a slightly more difficult place to make money. Even companies that did make huge profits on the internet have been slow to move and to innovate in new industries. 
Facebook, Google and Apple have introduced little other than slight upgrades in existing products for years. Facebook and Google still rely on advertising revenue for their profits. Meanwhile, Apple still makes most of its money from a 12-year-old technology in the smartphone, which will continue to see diminishing returns. A CEO, who wasn't a glorified accountant like Tim Cook, might have been more secure and more confident in using Apple's huge profits and capital in more daring and risky ways. Even Amazon's e-commerce retail arm, now over 25 years old, still doesn't make a huge amount of profit. Amazon relies on Amazon Web Services for their profit. Therefore, America's economic problem is one of a lack of re-innovation, and therefore lower and lower profits. This is not new. Britain, Germany and Japan, the only other industrial historical rivals for the US, has had exactly the same issues, of wealth being mismanaged and misused, both by companies and political elites. Britain's industrial wealth by the 1850s was starting to be squandered as it tried to maintain a huge sprawling empire. Far from making the British Empire, with its imperial preference tariff, a huge circular economy, it simply meant that capital was pouring out of Britain and into the colonies to try and maintain political order. Britain stifled innovation abroad and had less money to reinvest in Britain itself. Britain didn't even manage to build up a place like India to something of a similar level to itself. A few railways here and there, but India remained dirt poor. The lack of reinvesting profits at home and back into British industry allowed Germany and the United States to catch up. Germany, which wasn't even a country until 1871, merely a collection of city-states and larger princelets, had a very decentralised model. This continues even today, with over 4,000 banks in Germany, compared to really about five in Britain. This meant capital has always been more decentralised in Germany, but it too has squandered its huge industrial growth and wealth twice in a generation, with both the First and Second World War devastating its economy and its people. Meanwhile, the United States continued to grow and grow. The first 100 years of America's history from 1776 was focused on growing into the interior of the continent. Had the United States stayed in the original 13 colonies, then it's almost certain its industrial revolution would have kept pace with Britain's, considering the closeness of the two peoples. Yet, with all that virgin land, surplus capital was pumped into expanding rather than investing in where it was. By 1865 and the end of the American Civil War, there was two major developments. The decimation of the slave economy in the South and the start of industrialization in the North. Industrialization in the United States happened on a scale never seen before. The huge wealth that was growing in the United States brought huge amounts of immigrants to the United States as ordinary people could profit like never before. Huge profits were available in almost every area. Industries like oil, automobiles and telephones were largely focused in the United States. The profits seemed endless. All manner of other new technologies made the country more interconnected and the people more economically efficient. At the same time, with a fairly stable currency in the US dollar, normal people could go from poverty in Europe to a stable middle-class lifestyle. The American dream, they called it. The American dream has always been illusionary. But there was an underlying truth. 
America was a land of prosperity for all, the likes of which has never been seen before. The equality of capital meant there was no true aristocrats. First, second and third generation immigrants could become a part of the ruling elite. Like Britain, the political elites over many years, especially since the 1980s, shifted the American economy away from industry and towards globalisation, similar to Britain's shift towards empire. It was already clear that America could not and did not want to keep up with the high-tech manufacturing occurring in places like Japan and Taiwan. While other things like steelmaking, base-level service jobs and resource extraction went abroad too. America, in the second and third industrial revolutions, had been the first country to lead two industrial revolutionary cycles. But it too fell into the same trap of over-investing abroad and not investing enough at home. Profits overseas were simply seen as easier to gain in the short run. America began to export its consumerism as much as it exported its technology. America's global empire was never quite as complete or as formal as Britain's empire, but it never really had the ambition to do that. America's empire was all about American capital investment, backed up by its military and not the other way around. American capital poured across the world through offshoring and the Americanization of economies. Coca-Cola, Disney and Ford, and then Microsoft, McDonald's and Starbucks, and Apple took over the world. This new world order was backed up by the United States' military dominance. American military power was the biggest in human history. Not only was the American military bigger than the next 15 countries combined, many of those 15 countries were its avowed allies. America had power like never before. Much of America's military might has been used poorly. It has not been used since 1945 in necessary conflicts. But the United States managed to get sucked into numerous draining wars like Vietnam, Afghanistan and Iraq, which drained resources, political capital and sowed distrust of the state itself. Like the British in Crimea and the Boer War, the United States looked beatable and, especially in comparison to the Boer War, looked incapable of beating local guerrilla peasants despite its huge advantages. The money to fund these wars was not done through taxation, but borrowing. The adding of huge debts into the world economy by the US government has added to inflationary pressures across the world. It is safe to say that in 2021, America has still not managed to gain the benefits that should have accrued from leading this digital or third revolution. Much of the technology that was designed in the US was built and made by the newest and fastest growing allies in East Asia. Places like South Korea, Japan and Taiwan built semiconductors rather than places like Chicago. Even during the third industrial revolution, America's economy began to seem slightly off kilter. You can see this by watching American films. Watch any 90s American family film and see how middle class much of the films look. They're family films aimed at middle class families. Compare these family films to family films of the 2010s and America starts to look a bit more depressing. What you're watching via Hollywood is the slow elimination of the American middle class. The lack of new growth areas in the American heartlands since the 1970s saw political fragmentation, as each new generation of politicians never supported policies 
that might reorient the economy inwards and towards industrial growth and monetary stability. The sucking of wealth from the beneficiaries of industrial heartlands meant that a traditional base of middle-class entrepreneurs and ambitious people didn't have the money or security to invest in the same way as before. Capital just continued to go overseas. Local communities began to fragment. Banking, which had long been a local thing, just watch It's a Wonderful Life, became far more centralised over the 20th century, and local capital became harder to access for many. Even though much of the American heartlands were decimated by this turn away from inward investment and towards globalisation, the world, I think, was appreciative. I remember my dad telling me how excited he was in the 1980s going to the first McDonald's that opened near him and how excited he was this icon of America had come to 1980s broke Birmingham. In my youth, in the poor north of England, birthday parties moved from dull and damp church halls and small houses to the Hollywood Bowl, Peter Hut and Frankie and Benny's and then to the great multiplex cinemas to watch American-made films, all for cheap, affordable prices. My childhood would have been a lot more dull without the globalisation and American consumerism. The 1990s to the present has seen the middle class in much of the West shrink. A symptom of the slowdown and decline of industrial power which has divided the American nation, as the very self-image of the country begins to be debated. The very nature of America fell apart as the middle class began to vanish and the Rust Belt sank into a depression. Continued disinterest in industrial investment made many bitter. Like Britain before it, money was sunk into expanding the world of American influence not investing in its own people. The Americanization of the world was built on the legacy of industrial power, but much of it was based on an illusion of inherent strength in the American economy, which in turn was based on American war potential, rather than its overall economic capacity. The rich got very rich, but the poor suffered. Other parts of the world began to take over American industrial power, and America went through its Victorian period. A great empire, seemingly at the top, the largest economy in the world, but maybe behind the scenes, not quite the power we thought it was. America's growth slowly waned, and future growth areas, such as new energy sources, faster transportation, or investment in new technological areas such as space and robotics never saw the profits needed to keep the American economy as far ahead of the rest of the world as its self-image demanded. Even by the late 1980s, it was clear that America could be getting overtaken by another industrial power. A real scare went through America about the advancement of Japan. Japan looked like the future. Japan had been mastering high-speed rail. It had a clearly more competitive car industry, shown since the 1973 oil crisis highlighted the inefficient nature of American cars. It too had a growing cultural dominance with Nintendo, Sony and Sega. It also had growing capital reserves. Just think of all those sitcoms with the stereotypical Japanese investor. The Sony Walkman was a Japanese cultural icon. High-tech consumer electronics were developed and pioneered by Japan. Cameras all became Japanese, as Kodak was toppled. It was only in the narrow area of IT and the internet where American companies could outgrow Japan, and grow they did. These new American huge IT companies did not operate like traditional corporations, but as private fiefdoms for their owners. 
rather than working to secure profits for shareholders. These tech entrepreneurs used private money, cheap debt, and exorbitant valuations to build their empires. It was more aristocracy than capitalism. And it didn't really help the economy. Profits were not dispersed to shareholders. The companies were run for revenue growth, not profit maximisation. It destabilised the economy as profits became scarce. Amazon began to rely solely on the profits of Amazon Web Services, which provides cloud computing, and by itself would be one of the most profitable companies in the world, to subsidise its retail empire. Jeff Bezos could then use these profits to grow Amazon into other areas, undercutting competition and to grow a monopoly. America's decades of tech growth hasn't helped the general economy as much as you might think. The super growth of these internet and app companies meant everybody looked for easy gains in tech stocks, thinking anything and everything internet, tech and app related was a secure long-term investment. What started as an obvious and easy way to make a profit on investment reached a natural limit on how much money could be made from one area, as everything became saturated and then overvalued. Rather than a bust, however, capital has carried on being poured into unprofitable startups, as everybody thought the next business was bound to be the next Facebook, Instagram or WhatsApp. Yet, the deflationary nature of the internet and the ease and the spread of information effectively renders many of these business models very poor indeed. News paywalls can be gotten around. Most videos could be gotten for free. User-generated content is almost as good quality as paid versions. Any app can be recreated for almost no money. Uber might be hugely profitable, but it's so easy to copy that Lyft and existing local taxi firms can provide enough competition, is always going to be trying to make out ways to eke out profits. In the short term, the internet hasn't quite proven itself to be great for profits and great for businesses as many first imagined it to be. So, going back a moment, if all this is true about the American economy, why did the Japanese economy not manage to overtake it in the 1990s. Well, basically, Japan reached the possible limits of technological growth and what efficiency gains it could make with the technology available. But Japan could not make it through a new or fourth technological revolution by itself, which it would need to continue its growth rates. It couldn't find and develop the technology to continue efficiency gains. For GDP to really grow, you need productivity growth, which is essential to make more wealth for the same amount of people. And as Japan caught up to the West following its devastation in the Second World War, it started to overtake the West in certain areas. Many of Japan's attempted radical technological advancements failed to produce this new technological revolution. Investments made by the Japanese in areas like rail, robotics and telecommunications were stunning, but nowhere near broad enough or on a large enough scale to begin a fourth industrial revolution. So Japan didn't quite diverge from the rest of the world. For example, Japan's building of high-speed rail was of course hugely impressive, but its developments weren't anywhere near fast enough. It took the British 10 years in the 1840s to build an entire railway network. But it took Japan nearly 50 years to merely build several lines of high-speed rail. 
Of course, this was far better than many in the West, but still not a complete revolution in how the Japanese were transported. What was to blame? Well, a lack of immigration and, subsequently, expensive wages and an aging workforce meant it never quite had the manpower it needed. Both the US and Britain had had huge immigrant workforces. To do the work the native-born thought was too hard or the capitalists thought would be too expensive to pay the native-borns. Canals and railways were all built by immigrants. Furthermore, Japan's homogeneity stopped developing any particularly alternative ways of thinking. The individualism that naturally exists in the United States and Britain resulted in great bottom-up technological revolutions. And this was one of the largest causes of the Californians being the first to develop the internet. The Japanese could have become internet pioneers, but it never did. Japan's insular nature following the defeat in the Second World War meant it had no real cultural dominance, merely cultural influence. Britain and America had a huge informal network spanning the globe. While Japan's attempt to sow its seeds in Asia during its imperial era were put down and stopped, first by China and then the atom bomb. Japan's technology had been seen as so far ahead by the 1980s and 1990s that Japanese tech was seen as the best in the world. However, this meant others looked to Japan and tried to imitate and then overtake it. Slowly, Japan began to lose its cutting edge as Taiwan, South Korea and then China challenged it in many areas. Japan still remains a wondrous place. The most modern country on earth, with a strong yet niche cultural influence, it still has many high-tech industries. But it's a place where strong economic growth rates are largely absent. It has almost no natural resources, further limiting its growth. Everything has to be imported. Britain and America both have vast and diverse natural resources, from coal to oil, minerals and bountiful agricultural land. Poor public policy also played a role in Japan too. Japan, with no natural resources, could have been the first to invest in a new generation of nuclear energy, allowing electric cars in Japan to boom, which would have made electricity cheaper and cheaper, and further incentivizing Japanese car companies to produce electric cars. Both developments could have led to a huge export industry, but it never happened. Following the nuclear disaster in 2011, Japan receded from being a nuclear powerhouse of the world, and it didn't exactly move to wind or solar power either. It moved back to fossil fuels. So, as we look around the world, we have to wonder where a new wave of technological innovation that will drive future genuine investments in the economy will come from. For this, you need a fairly large population and in large, relatively dense cities to allow network effects to do take place. You need somewhere that's already wealthy enough with skills in digital communications to move from the third to the fourth industrial revolution. So, if not Japan, for a future burst of innovation and an uncertainty about America, we need to consider where else this technological progress might come from. Europe, to me, seems an unlikely place for future high growth rates. The European Union the self-appointed kings of the European continent are fixated on cementing itself as a political power on the continent, rather than prosperity for all. The hugely profitable companies in Germany, the Netherlands and Scandinavia are funding huge wealth transfers to the south. 
This does not engender broad overall technological development. This funding has meant Spain, not Germany, has the best high-speed rail and road network in Europe. Meanwhile, the Spanish high-speed rail system is the clear product of government fiat, not common sense. The high-speed rail network links all the capitals of the Spanish provinces together by high-speed rail. Yet some of these cities are really just towns with only 30,000 people or so, and they don't really have a need for high-speed rail. A high-speed commuter rail network for Madrid and Barcelona, with some good intercity services, would be what a commercial company in a free market would do. But that's the European Union for you. Everything is political. Spanish high-speed stations are even built on the edge of cities, when most people who want to travel by rail do so as they want to get to the city centre as quickly as possible. Germany's huge budget surplus has funded much of this, so it's hardly surprising that a new wave of European innovation feels unlikely, as its most productive areas are being sucked dry. Money isn't being invested where it is most efficient. It's being built to prop up the south of Europe in a political project. Germany hardly has a high-speed rail network. Its companies are all old, and whilst still producing high-quality consumer goods, it might struggle to keep up. Germany's ageing population is continuing to pay for the future of Europe, not for their own futures or their children's. Meanwhile, the Netherlands and Scandinavia, other future possible industrial growth areas, are too small to maintain an entire industrial revolution by themselves. So China, where many still see the future. China's awful political regime will stamp down on any truly revolutionary idea, as it will see it as a threat to its own power. Capitalism in China is not a free market thing, it's a political thing. China will not, under any circumstances, allow a monetary revolution to empower a new class of wealthy. Areas of interest to the Chinese Communist Party will be selected for rapid growth. But these areas, like US investments in the space and the internet, or Japanese investments in robotic and high-speed rail may not see the instant profits many think. Future technological growth doesn't automatically result in huge profits. Promising areas like the internet can really take 10, 20 or 30 years to go from an interesting technology to a truly revolutionary piece of capitalism. 3D printing or quantum computing may develop rapidly, but they may not provide the huge efficiency gains and be the broad-based technological growth area the Chinese Communist Party thinks it will be. Genuine future profits, and therefore growth, may come from someplace else. Something like a monetary revolution. China, like the Soviet Union before it, may have a few Sputnik moments over the coming years, but I think it's unlikely to produce a broad-level technological revolution the Chinese Communist Party so desperately wants. It will be too inefficient at allocating capital. The American century of dominance was based on a decentralisation of wealth across the country producing feedback effects across the economy, which in turn boosted things like tourism, cultural exports, while also enticing many of the brightest to come to America to fund and populate new rounds of innovation and growth. America can pick any immigrant it wants, and it can pay the best in the world for their talents. Immigrants are hardly wanting to go to the most authoritarian and harshest regime in the world, 
where freedoms are nothing, and Xi Jinping is king. China's natural resources too are limited for a country of that size. A few rare earth minerals here and there, and a bit of coal is probably not quite what China needs. China has no cultural exports, and its main soft power piece of influence is the huge amounts of the Chinese dysphoria across the world. China will always be a threat, but I think it will always appear this elusive threat and never actually quite threaten. Chinese investment, as we talked about, in areas like AI, quantum computing, and a monetary revolution reliant on central bank digital currencies may pay off, but they may not. Like Japan's robotics experiments or America's space age, these technological investments may produce insane results that are government funded and highly specific, but fail to really produce a new capitalist investment area. Future and productive capital may lie elsewhere. And this is the nature of capitalism and why government investment is not always the panacea everybody thinks it is. This to me is why state-controlled capitalism doesn't work. Capitalism allows ordinary people to invest in what is important to them by giving them a fair wage for their skills allowing them a surplus of funds to put money where they like. From this, you only need a Wright brother here or there, or a Steve Jobs, to help things along the way. Decentralised investment can result in guiding future capital investment to where profits are much more certain to be found, rather than the guesses of central bankers or politicians. The canal and railway manias in Britain began due to widespread capital in local areas being able to invest in their local areas and investing in this new technology to upgrade where they lived. It completely changed how everything was done and these investments showed themselves very quickly to be hugely profitable. The Bridgewater Canal of 1760 was funded by a local aristocrat simply to get his coal quicker to market. The subsequent huge profit increase he saw meant everybody else saw the same thing and everybody wanted a canal. Money was poured into the canals and it seemed like a sure thing and for many years canal investment was. But soon all the most profitable canal routes had been built and money was being pumped into ever less profitable canals, until eventually there was no more profits to be had. The canal mania ended, but for 50 years these canals provided a backbone to an island with limited natural inland waterways. For the early investors who got into the most profitable canals that connected the main cities, these profits were huge. Canals remained in operation, turning over these regular profits until the next technological improvement, the railways, which once again proved that local capital was the key. The railways started in the northeast of England, in Stockton and Darlington, which were two areas that had gotten rich from coal exporting, and so the two towns wanted to connect. The two towns missed out on the canal mania, and so the locals pushed for a connection via canal. However, somebody then had the bright idea of a horse-drawn cart road to connect the two. And then somebody said, what would happen if we did it via rail? They asked George Stevenson to plan this route, but he had an even better idea. He pushed for a steam-powered locomotive cart on rails. The idea of steam locomotion had been experimented with for many years. With mine carts slowly being converted away from horse-drawn to steam. Getting the coal from the mines 
to the canals even quicker. Stevenson thought the technology was advanced enough to be able to move humans around, and so he set to work. Meanwhile, two of the richest cities in the north of England, Manchester and Liverpool, wanted to connect. Having seen Stevenson's work, they wanted a piece of the action, and so moved to get Stevenson to build a new steam engine to power this route. He came back with the iconic rocket engine. It moved people at 30 miles an hour, faster than humans had ever moved before. Soon, the profits in moving people in this way were realised and saw a railway mania much like the canal mania of previous years. Essentially funded and started by the middle classes, it was an 18th century version of Wall Street Bets. Except rather than speculating on assets, it was speculation on infrastructure, which provided genuine value. These types of large profits based on new technology are, in the 2020s, now much harder to come by. Technological progress has slowed down, and this has meant the surplus excess of resources in society are now chasing increasingly scarce new sources of profit. Tesla is now valued at over 1,000 times its earnings. But this is merely the most obvious example. Even highly profitable companies have seen their price earnings ratios soar as people pump excess money into the stock market. But let's just look at Tesla for a moment. Its entire value is built upon possible future profits. I don't want to say Tesla's a bad investment, in many ways it's an amazing investment, but what will be done if these profits don't start to come in? This is the entire value of companies. Tesla might not want to return these profits to investors and use these profits to expand its revenue growth like an Amazon or a Google. It may make bad decisions, further draining profits. We simply don't know because it's not there yet. What value would this give to shareholders like pension funds who rely on steady dividends? In short, any modern notion of stockholder value is paper thin. Tomorrow, any car company could make a better electric car and cheaper than Tesla's, or even simply be able to produce more cars than Tesla. In short, Tesla's stock is based on the future possibility that it will produce a large profit, and this profit being given back to shareholders, something we simply don't know if it will happen or not. To do this, and to reach the scale of its valuation, Tesla basically needs to become an electric car monopoly in the next 10 to 15 years. It will have to wipe out much competition, which is possible, but it will never do it entirely. The Japanese will still probably want to drive electric Toyotas. The French will for some reason want to drive electric Renaults. The Germans electric Volkswagens and the Americans Many will still be happy driving electric Fords. With so many of the world's profitable companies focused on growth because of a fundamental lack of good investment in bringing reliable profits, perpetual growth models are beginning to break down. If shareholders realise Tesla is just likely to become another car company, selling more or less the same amount of cars as Toyota, it will surely not be worth too much more than Toyota. How long can people have their wealth tied up in companies that never make a profit and never return money to them? If there's a collapse of confidence in the economy, we will find out. So, how does all this lead us back to where we started? In the past, few decades, a lot of growth has been funded by overseas profit and less by profits at home. Nothing is really made in the West anymore, except maybe Germany. Britain and America 
have moved to a service-based economy, which essentially means we look after other people and their money. This doesn't produce a strong middle or working class. These people rely on things being made and making these things, and then running small businesses based on either making these things or selling these things. Yet, I do believe the 2020s are seeing a change. Jobs will be brought back home. Investments will be made in infrastructure by governments all across the world. This will probably lead to good economic growth. But if it's based on Klaus Schwab's blueprint of the World Economic Forum, it will not lead to a decentralised and well-distributed economic growth, which can then fund new and radical innovations, like in previous cycles of industrial revolutions. This should be alarming to many. With interest rates collapsing, debts at sky-high levels, and government printing continuing unabated, at some point there needs to be high economic growth for the world to continue. Something unlikely to happen if there's still this monetary imbalance in the economy. For Bitcoiners, the mantra of being your own bank is the solution to the centralisation and mismanagement of excess resources by banks and politicians. By the nature of its inability to be manipulated, Bitcoin looks like one of the few moves away from government-led systems and for a return to sounder monetary policy. The new Bitcoin world will still see rewards for those who want to take long-term investment risk. And these new wealthy Bitcoiners will have the funds and the ideas to do so, creating a spiral of innovation and prosperity. For those who don't want to take risks, they can just hodl Bitcoin, relying on others to take the risks for them. If a Bitcoin economy allows for capital to be allocated better, and I think it will be, it will see gains for everybody who is invested in Bitcoin as the capital gained from these investment profits are put back into Bitcoin, driving up Bitcoin's purchasing power for everybody. Bitcoin will return the world to a growth economy, as only profitable enterprises will survive in a new and more brutal capitalism, which, paradoxically, will benefit everybody. So, I want to end this chapter with an analogy. If you've ever seen a David Attenborough documentary, or remember biology from school, you'll be aware of the concept of an ecosystem. It requires a balanced ecosystem, for example, to support charismatic megafauna like elephants, lions, blue whales, giant redwoods, or pandas. Think about how much food the average elephant needs to survive. It takes tons and tons a day. Therefore, it needs a rich, fertile area with a natural, unspoiled equilibrium so that no animal gets too powerful or too numerous to take over and destroy parts of the ecosystem. The monetary system works the same way. If you alter the ecosystem by, say, inflating away the purchasing power of wages, these economic ecosystems break down, causing localised oppressions in certain areas which are reliant on wages. If you alter the ecosystem by, say, inflating away the purchasing power of wages, these economic ecosystems start to break down, and it causes localised oppressions in areas which are reliant on wages but it doesn't cause an impact on those places reliant on asset prices, which tend to be the rich area. In effect, a monetary ecosystem breaks down. This has massive consequences, not just for money and wealth, but for culture and arts. It takes a strong local monetary ecosystem to create a strong local artistic or creative place like Liverpool in the 1950s and 60s, 
or 1920s New Orleans, where lots of young people with money to spend can spend it on what they like and drive the necessary supply and demand for new and better musicians. From this, occasionally, you get a charismatic megafauna of culture coming from these ecosystems. Louis Armstrong or the Beatles grew out of the respective jazz and Merseybeat scenes. Yet it can't just be me who sees that the number of great artists, musicians, writers and economists in the modern economy declines as a monetary ecosystem starts to break down. As wages don't fairly reward new and interesting writers, musicians or whomever to take risks. They simply can't afford it. It takes an ecosystem that is big and stable enough to be able to justify and support going against the grain or to be elevated by the system. We could go into things like the decline of the media and argue this has also been down to the decimation of the purchasing power of wages, meaning people have less ability to fund and pay fair money for their news. Newspapers have therefore turned away from its readers and towards advertisers, donors and their own owners to fund their operations. What I want to highlight then is that everything in society relies on these local monetary ecosystems being strong and stable to support a strong and healthy society. Those men in sheds creating the new technologies in the 1750s and 1760s needed time and space, but also money to get going. Inventors need this strong monetary ecosystem to survive in order for them to get paid what their labour is worth. All the greatest inventions do come from the bottom up. With the support of a strong and rich monetary ecosystem, it can happen even quicker. It allows individuals to do things and follow their instincts and to be able to disagree with the system and challenge it, rather than being tied to the system. Whether it's penicillin, not discovered by a big pharma company, but an independent researcher, or the PC developed by Jobs and Wozniak, which could initially be funded by Jobs working for IBM for only a few months and passing off Wozniak's work as his own. Their ability to live and start a company with such minimal employment and to follow their dreams looks like something of a bygone era. Apple's growth was funded by local capital. And remember, California was not like it is now. There was normal decentralised wealth, but nothing like the amount of money there is today. The last 30 years, and maybe more, might be seen as a relative dark age of technological progress outside cyberspace. The physical world has not caught up to the rapid proliferation of the internet, resulting in a semi-permanent economic stagnation in the physical world. So the question I want to leave you in this chapter is whether you trust your leaders to be the ones to unleash this new and perhaps needed growth of innovation in the economy? Or would you prefer a decentralised version that benefits as many people as possible through the decentralised benefits of sound money? So, thank you for listening to that episode. If you liked it, feel free to give a star rating or leave a comment. Perhaps you want to explore my other podcast, 100 Greatest Inventions. In the next episode, we're going to start looking at the concept of the sovereign citizen.